0: Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2.14 The Cushions and the Menace from the West. It's 185 BC, India, and the empire of the Mauryans reaches a sordid end as the last general thrusts a knife into the back of the last emperor. It was an empire that just couldn't seem to find its feet after the death of its greatest emperor. Snap forward 400 years, it's 258 AD, India. And the empire of the Kushans reaches a quiet end, as the last emperor dies peacefully in bed, 1,500 kilometres from his homeland, his empire seized from him by forces beyond his control. Or is that the right way to tell the story? Because other historians say, that the Mauryan Empire was destroyed not by uh, not being able to find its feet after the greatest emperor died, but by the greatest emperor himself, Ashoka. His pacifism led to the armies kind of becoming stagnant and unable to defend the empire. And other historians say different things. Some of them say that the Mauryan Empire ended because of a change in the religious climate. Others say it ended because of a failure of technology. The Mauryan Empire was just too big and there wasn't enough technology to to rule it effectively. And other historians say different things again. Some of them say that the Mauryan Empire ended because of a habit of letting the sons of emperors be crown princes, or because of the unusual incompetence and folly of certain emperors, or because of foreign invasions, or because of the increasing power of civil servants, or because of and so on and so on. Historians love this stuff. You can write endless pages debating why the Mauryan Empire ended. Frankly, though, I find it all just a little bit confusing. I don't know what to say. And it's not just because there are so many different theories to think about. It's more than that. It's because I don't know how those theories combine with one another. For instance, it seems like it's okay to say that the Mauryan Empire ended both because of the folly of later emperors and because of a change in religious climate. But does this undermine any reason for thinking that it was due to a foreign invasion? And come to think of it, I'm not exactly clear on what all of these theories really mean. What really does it mean to say that a lack of technology caused the Mauryan Empire to fall? And what does it mean to say that that was the cause, rather than the increasing power of civil servants? Perhaps I'm in too much of a philosophical mood. If I was in a different mood, say a cynical mood, I might say something quite different. I might say that what a historian tells you about what caused the end of an empire tells you a lot more about the historian than about the empire. It's a curious fact, for instance, that as climate change has become more and more important to us in the modern day, more and more historians have claimed that this empire or that empire ended because of climate change. It's really easy for a cynic to suspect that If I'm trying to persuade people that the Mauryan Empire ended because of climate change, what I'm really doing is warning people to watch out. Climate change is really dangerous. Or if I say that the Mauryan Empire ended because of technological failure and not because of the decision of individual emperors, what I'm really doing is saying that rulers' decisions are less important than industry, that we should not care so much about the big features, the big characters in our public life. Or at least that's what a cynic might say. Personally, I wouldn't like to comment. Why am I waxing lyrical about the end of empires? Well, because it's a sad day. In this episode, we have the end of the Cushion Empire. Even sadder than that, in this episode, we have the end of series two, or the end of the main narrative part of series two. So we're going to tell the tale of the downfall of the Cushions, And actually, I'm not going to spend much time thinking about why the Kushan Empire ended. I'm going to spend more time on questions that I find more exciting. What were the Kushan rulers thinking as the empire was threatened, as it started to turn the corner in decline? What did they feel and do when they realised that this was it? And even more exciting than that, what did normal people think, the subjects of the empire? Did they even notice that the empire was about to end? Or is it somehow possible to have an empire crash around your ears without any noticeable warning? Or did some people notice and try to warn the others? And did the others just laugh at them? And what difference did it make to their lives that the empire had ended? Did their worldview shrink? Were they cut off from the world? Did they get poorer or richer? Or did it make pretty much no difference to their life at all? Now, we can only guess about the answer to most of these questions. The problem, if you're a historian interested in the end of an empire, is that the records seem to stop about the same time that the empire does. But we're going to have a good go at answering these questions nonetheless. So here it is, the story of the end of the Kushan Empire. Ready? Let's go. Back when Kanishka the Great had been king of the Kushan lands, the Kushan Empire was very much on the rise. Kanishka had conquered vast areas of Indian territory and he added all of that trading and manufacturing wealth to the empire. And he conquered just as much territory outside of India. To the north of the homeland Bactria were these states that were loyal to China, Well, Kanishka made them loyal to him. And to the east of Bactria were the great enemy Parthia, one of the three great powers of the world. And Kanishka went there and gave them such a beating that they never recovered. And in fact, the Kushan Empire took their place alongside Rome and China as one of the three great powers of the world. So things were very much on the up. After Kanishka's death, things seemed to be going in the same direction, at least for a while. Kanishka's son inherited the throne, and his name was Huvishka. Huvishka was a big-nosed, pokey-looking chap, But he looked after himself, he had a neatly trimmed beard, and he wore the classic cushion uh, clothes, the long-sleeved tunic, the trousers and the pointy hat, but they were very finely decorated. With Huvishka in charge, the empire kept expanding, but perhaps a little bit slower than under his father, Kanishka. Kanishka, by the very second year of his reign, had already been conquering whole kingdoms, and he kept up that pace pretty much every year afterwards. But it seems that Huvishka was much more careful. He expanded a little bit. He expanded, for example, over the river Oxus. That was in Central Asia, expanding over back onto the steppe where his distant ancestors had once come from. And he also expanded north, up the western side of the Himalayas. Under Huvishka, the Kushan Empire even got so far that it started to interfere with what we think of as China proper, the modern state of China today. There was a kingdom on the border of China, modern China, and the kingdom was called Shule. It was the western end of the great Tarim Basin. The Tarim Basin was that dry, uninhabited bowl of dust that the pilgrim from last week's episode skirted around the edge of on the way to India. The story goes that the king of Shule had a fight with his uncle, and he threw his uncle out of the country. We don't know what the uncle did, if he did anything – but the uncle did the natural thing, and he ran to the nearest world power for protection. And the nearest world power wasn't China, it was the Kushan Empire. So the royal uncle of Shuley settled down into courtly life in the Kushan court as an exile. And over time, he and Emperor Huvishka became good friends. Well, the years rolled by. And then one day news came that the king of Shulei had died. And he must have died quite young and unexpectedly, because he'd left no son to inherit the throne, he'd left the inheritance a mess, and in fact his mother was still alive. And what his mother did when her son died was took control of the empire, and he put, she put a, a male relative on the throne. Well, back in the Cushion court, the king's uncle heard about this, and it seemed to him he was missing out on what was rightfully his. So he went and found his mate, Emperor Huvishka, and he asked him for help. Huvishka gladly obliged. He got together some of the Cushion soldiers and he sent them along with the uncle back to the land of Shule. So the the uncle and the Cushion soldiers are arriving in Shule and the people see him coming from way off and they go and find the new king. And they strip from him the, the, the symbols of his office, the symbols of the kingdom, the seal and the ribbon. And they run out to the uncle with these symbols and make the uncle king because they are terrified of the Cushion soldiers. So Huviska's soldiers, Huviska's military power, gave him a tremendous amount of power and sway over a huge territory, even beyond the official borders. If foreign policy was looking quite strong, then within the empire things looked equally rosy, at least for a while. In fact, people were richer than they'd ever been before, richer than they'd been under the great king, Kanishka. If you look at the Kushan coins that we've found, by far the majority of them were from Huvishka's reign. Of all the gold coins, 156 of them bear Huvishka's face and name. And that's compared to 122 of the other Kushan gold coins from all the other Kushan kings, Kanishka the Great included. So judged simply by the amount of gold flowing around the country, the place under Huvishka was just teeming with wealth. And with all of that gold flying around, it's only natural that the urban centres, the cities and the towns, continued to grow big and prosperous under Huvishka. And actually we know that Huvishka founded some towns himself. He founded a town called Hushkapura, the city of Huvishka, up in Kashmir. It was uh, plugging the end of the Barmala Pass, the gateway to the Kashmir Valley. And it sat there, surrounded by steep walls of snow and ice. And Huvishka had a monastery constructed there and a stupa too. And the town and the monastery stood there watching over the pass for centuries. And in fact, when a Chinese monk came looking for Buddhist books centuries later, he visited the monastery, he stayed there, and he reported that the monks were exceptionally friendly. But don't get the idea that Huvishka was a partisan for Buddhism like his father. Under his father Kanishka, Buddha had been on every single coin, and The the Buddhists had been gifted a wonder of the world. But under Huvishka, religious life settled back down to what it was before, a sort of broad-minded secularism, the state equally involved in all the religions. The coins of the empire, which in Kanishka's time had only featured the Buddha, now started to feature all the gods again. The Bactrian gods, Mao, Miro, Nana, the Indian gods, Shiva, Skanda, and the Greek gods made a return too, Heracles amongst them. In fact, even Rome, Rome personified as a woman, made it onto the back of coins. Curiously, amongst all of these coins, there wasn't a single image of the Buddha. Not one at all. So Hovishka kept the old secularism going. He also kept the old imperial cult going, this idea that the emperors were gods. In fact, he called himself by the same grand titles that all of the Kushan emperors before had used. Maharaja, Rajati Raja, Devaputra. Great king, king of kings, son of God. And Huvishka rebuilt the god houses, those statue halls of gods where the Kushan emperors had their own images installed, saying, we're gods too. Uh, His grandfather, Wima's god house, he rebuilt that and he put a massive image of himself in it too. So life was very much back to normal in the Kushan Empire, and more prosperous than ever. And it must have seemed like this was going to go on and on. Huvishka's reign was long and immensely stable. So stable, in fact, that he managed to trim the metal content from the coins, to make them contain less metal than their face value. And when you think about that, it shows that his people trusted him to be around for a very long time, Because they had to accept using coins, not for the value of the metal that those coins contained, but for the value of its promise, the promise of the state, that this coin could be redeemed for its true value. People wondering whether a new state might take over in their lifetime wouldn't bother using devalued coins like this. If a new state took over, there'd be no one to keep the promise of the old state, and the coins would be worth far less than you'd paid for them. But a new state taking over seems to have been almost unimaginable to Hovishka's subjects. Well, they should have known better, because the end for the Kushans was not too far away. The Kushan Empire that had risen so quickly under Kanishka had slowed under Huvishka, and unbeknownst perhaps to anyone in the empire, it had already reached its peak and was starting to move back down to earth. Before we tell that part of the story, though, there's a historical mystery to deal with. The mystery of the phantom kings. And it's worth going into because it might remind us that we don't really know anything about what's going on. It reminds us just how ignorant we are. The mystery goes like this. There's a later Indian chronicle that says that there were three kings ruling the Kushan Empire at the time. Kanishka, Huvishka, and a king called Jushka. And it isn't just some folk tale. Because archaeologists were digging in Taxila, as archaeologists love to do, and they came across an inscription in the script that the Kushans used. And the inscription talked about a king of the Kushans, a man named Vashishka. And it was dated to Huvishka's reign. And they found more such inscriptions down in Matura, also naming Vashishka's king, also during the time of Huvishka's reign. So is this perhaps the third of the kings in the chronicle, Jushka? Are there three kings actually ruling side by side, Kanishka, Huvishka and Jushka? Was the Kushan Empire, which you've just argued was so stable, splintering? To make matters even more confusing, archaeologists found an inscription in the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, and it talks about Kanishka, the son of Vashishka. This is someone who died before Huvishka. Huvishka. And was this the Kanishka of the three kings in the chronicle? not Kanishka the Great. Well, if you're bewildered by all the names, so am I. And frankly, so is everyone else too. We really don't know what to say about all of this. The idea that the Kushan Empire was really split into two or three is, I think, fabulously implausible. There's just no archaeological sign of the split. There's no other point in Kushan history where there's joint rulership there are no coins from either of the phantom kings, and you think about it, that's virtually impossible, given that they're supposed to have ruled for about a decade or so. And most of all, the suggested way of splitting up the Kushan Empire makes no geopolitical sense at all. The kingdoms that each king would rule just aren't coherent entities, they're not sensible, ruleable territories, they're just oddly disjointed patches of land. Suppose So, so this, this Vavishka character is supposed to have ruled both in Taxila and in Matura, And they would have effectively ruled all the Kushan centres of India. But we know that Huvishka at the same time was ruling much of India, so he must have been ruling just the rim of the Kushan territories and nothing else. That just doesn't make sense. Another theory is that Vavishka is just an odd way of spelling Huvishka. And that's just about plausible if you squint and you turn your head and you remember that it was all translated from Bakrian into Prakrit. According to this theory, the person who wrote the inscription saying that Vashishka had a son called Kanishka had misspoken. They really meant to say that Kanishka had a son called Vashishka. Yeah. Well, that's just about as fabulously implausible as the other way of taking the phantom kings. But my favourite theory is a third one, and that is that Vashishka was the son of Huvishka. He was made viceroy first in Taxila and then in Mathura, and that's why he doesn't have any coins because he's only a viceroy. And then he died before Huvishka died, so he couldn't inherit the throne. But if I'm honest, this is a bit of a rubbish theory too. Because in the inscriptions, Vashishka calls himself Devaputra Maharaja Ratati Raja, the very same thing that only Kushan emperors called themselves. And a king as smart as Huvishka is hardly likely to let his little son, his little viceroy, call himself Raja, king of kings. Well, that was a puzzle, a conundrum. Who were these phantom kings, really? If you know the answer, please send it in on a postcard, but I don't. And actually, that's a nice reminder that everything at the end of the cushion period is pretty risky guesswork. For a moment there, we were confidently proclaiming that the Cushion Empire was stable and rich. But we don't even know who really was ruling it, or even whether it was being ruled by one person at all. Okay, having taken note of our breathtaking ignorance, it's time to plunge once more into confident proclamation and tell the story of the downfall of the Cushion Empire. Huvishka ruled for 40 long, peaceful years. And when he died, as far as we can guess, he was succeeded by his son. And his son's name was Vasudeva. Now anyone growing up with Indian stories and legends will immediately notice something different about Vasudeva. It's his name. All the other Kushans we know, and I mean literally all of them, have foreign names. Bactrian ones usually, or ones from whatever language the Kushans had before they came to Bactria. But not Vasudeva that's an Indian name. It means something like God resides. It's the name of Krishna's father. Krishna's one of the central gods of Hinduism. And in fact, it's a name that's sometimes used for Krishna too. Actually, I just lied. There are other Kushans we know with an Indian name, in fact, one of them. It's a later Kushan emperor, and he's also called Vasudeva. So very, very slowly, the Kushan emperors are beginning to show signs of picking up Indian culture. Our Vasudeva inherited a huge kingdom from his father. All the Indian territories were still there, more or less intact, from Peshawar to Taxila and down the broad valley of the Ganges. And since his father's day, the Kushan Empire now included large territories in Central Asia, even beyond their Bactrian homelands and Kabul. There's even a rumour that Vasudeva actually ruled a bit of China directly. Shanshan. Shanshan's all the way over at the eastern edge of the Great Tarim Basin, the very border of Han China. It's the first step on the Silk Road, really. And Shanshan, for for centuries, had been a client state of China. But now it seemed to be something else. Especially if you look at the archaeology, because we found there inscriptions in the script that Cushions used. And when you translate the script, it's in Prakrit, which is the language that the Kushans used. And it has all the peculiarities of grammar and vocabulary found in Taxila, which is a city in the Kushan heartlands. Or at least in Kushan India. And the rulers in Shan Shan, this this state right on the border of Han China, they use Kushan titles. Devaputra, Son of God, in their inscriptions. And even the coins of this state had Karashti on it, the script that the Kushans used. So the people spoke the same language as the Kushans. And the coins sometimes even had a Bactrian camel, an odd creature from the homeland of the Kushans. Even more, Buddhism, an Indian religion, was prevalent or even dominant in Shan Shan, with people from all walks of life from the local king on downwards following it. Overall, it starts to look a lot like Kushan territory. And even today, if you go there, some people say that their ancestors came from India. So was Shan Shan, right on the border of China, part of the Kushan territory? Well, probably not. Not officially, at least. There's no record in the Kushan documents describing it, or in later histories describing it as Kushan territory. And the Chinese records talk about it as if it's an independent kingdom. But at the very least, there's an area where the Kushans have very strong influence. It shows the immense power that the Kushan Empire had even now, It reached all the way to the very borders of the other great powers of the time. And Vasudeva even sent an embassy to China. Now by this time, the great Chinese Han Empire had already left the scene just recently. It split into three different kingdoms in what the Chinese historians call, sensibly enough, the Three Kingdom Period. One of the kingdoms is called the Wei Kingdom. It was ruled by a retainer of the old emperor and This was the kingdom that dominated the north of China. So it was right next to the territories where the Kushans controlled, or at least the Kushans had great influence. So Vasudeva sent an emissary to this new Chinese kingdom. And we don't exactly know what they talked about. But it's hard not to imagine that most of what Vasudeva was doing was just getting in touch with these guys for a bit of reassurance, just keeping friendly relations open. Because something very disturbing was happening in the world. The great powers of the world were disappearing. In the case of China, they were fragmenting, fragmenting into smaller kingdoms. And in the case of Rome, they were going silent altogether. The silence that the cushions heard from Rome was particularly disturbing. Rome and the Cushan Empire had long had a very close relationship. Roman historians don't really think about the Cushan Empire, but it's true nonetheless. Embassies regularly travelled from the Cushan court to Rome, and there they were met by the good emperors, Hadrian and Antoninus. And Rome and the Cushans had even helped one another militarily. They both supported rebellions against their common enemy, the Parthians. The real heart of the Rome-Cushion relationship, though, was really all about one thing. Gold. Roman gold, to be precise. Because the fields and the manufactories of India made the goods that the Roman elite loved. And the Roman elite consumed as many Indian goods as they could get their hands on. And they paid for them with staggering amounts of gold that made their way back to India. That pious old Roman Pliny complained, India, China and the Arabian Peninsula take 100 million sesterces of our empire per year, and that's a conservative estimate. That's what our luxuries and women cost us. For what fraction of these imports is intended for sacrifice to the gods or the spirits of the dead? So Roman gold was everywhere in Kushan lands. Actually, you find very few Roman gold coins in Kushan territory. You find far more Roman gold coins in other parts of India, to the south, for example, where the Kushans didn't hold any sway. But this was because the Kushans used to melt down the Roman gold coins and recast them into Kushan gold coins. So if you think about it, there's a bit of cheeky irony in the gold coins of Vasudeva's father's time, the ones which had the image of Rome as a goddess. Those were imprinted on Roman gold, cast from Roman gold. So for a long time, the Kushan Empire and Rome had been very close. But in Vasudeva's time, Rome had gone silent. There were no more Roman coins, no more embassies to Rome. No word came from them. And even the Roman merchants started to shift their attention to South India, outside of Kushan territory. A shadow had passed between the two great powers, a menace from the West. And one day, in the not-too-distant future, it would devastate both Rome and the Kushan Empire. But, like most great movements in history, you can only see it coming from a long way off. So to find out what this menace was and why it was there, we have to go back hundreds of years to when the ancestors of the Kushans first entered India. Back in the old days, the grand old empire to the west were the Parthians. Back when the ancestors of the Christians first came down off the steppe and settled into cities in Bactria, the Parthians were there. The Parthians ruled Iran, and they ruled also vast tracts of land to the east and west, including the cradle of civilization itself, the origin of cities, Mesopotamia. But Parthia had been slowly declining, ever since the Cushions had united the tribes and invaded India. And that's all the way back in episode 2.9 of this podcast. So the story of Parthia's decline is long and winding, and the Cushions sometimes had a quietly important role in the decline. But if there was one state that was most guilty of wiping out the Parthians, it was Rome what done it. The Romans and the Parthians basically got on for quite a long time, but around the time that Kanishka the Great was coming to the throne in India, an emperor called Marcus Aurelius was coming to the throne in Rome, and he was determined to wipe out those pesky Parthians. So the Romans launched an all-out attack on the Parthians, and initially the Romans had really bad luck. The Parthians drove back the Roman invasion, and they even conquered some new territory in Armenia. It was beginning to look like this whole Roman idea of crush the Parthians was a gigantic mistake. But then the fighting stopped. Something intervened. Nothing the Romans had done. Instead, it was the Cushions, in a way. Because there was a plague. It was probably smallpox or something like that. And it came from China and it was passed along the Silk Road by Cushion merchants and they took it to the Parthians. And the Parthian lands and the Parthian army were devastated by this disease, and so were the Roman lands too, as many as one in four people died. All fighting stopped dead. After a while, when the two sides had recovered enough to start fighting again, the Parthians had lost their momentum, and the Romans and their allies began to push the Parthians back. They beat the Parthians back from Armenia, and they made Armenia part of Rome, and then they started supporting rebellions within Parthia just as the Cushions did, and the combined effort of holding back the Romans on the one hand and suppressing internal rebellions on the other exhausted the Parthian army. But the killer blow came around the time that Huvishka was taking the throne in Parthia. By this time there was a new emperor on the throne of Rome, but we've got too many names in this episode already, so we're just going to call him the Emperor of Rome. So the Emperor of Rome offered the Parthians a peace treaty, he said, look, we Romans, we're just tired of this fighting. So let me marry your princess. Let me marry the Parthian king's daughter as a, as a seal, a sign on our peace treaty. And eventually the Parthians agreed. and The wedding day was set. The emperor of Rome turned up with his retinue and the great and the good of the Parthians came too. Everyone was there and it was set for a celebration of peace. But the emperor of Rome had a different idea. At a signal from him, all of his retinue pulled out their swords and they turned on their Parthian hosts. And the Parthian nobility, they were dressed in their finest clothes, long flowing robes, so they were unable to defend themselves. They turned to run, but they tripped up on their robes, they fell and the Roman swords plunged into them. The king of Parthia managed to escape with just one or two others, but most of the Parthian nobility were killed. And then the Emperor of Rome went on the rampage, destroying the possessions of the Parthians. He conquered their territories, conquered their, their, their tributary states, their allies. He even dug up the grave of the Parthian kings and scattered their bones. Job done, the Emperor turned back to Rome, when no doubt he expected to be given a triumph and lavished with praise. But somewhere on the road back to Rome, he stopped by the side of the road to relieve himself, and his bodyguard killed him dead. A nasty end for the Roman Emperor. The Roman Emperors were going to have to get used to this. But it didn't matter much because the Parthians were pretty much done for. They were just exhausted by constant batterings, constant wars over the years. And they retreated and hid in the mountains with a few warriors and just a few weapons. The enemy of the Romans and the Cushions would never again rise to the highest level on the world stage. But something much worse was coming. The heartlands of the Persians were in the highlands in the south of Iran, Fars. That's where some of the ancient cities were, Pasargade, the city of Cyrus the Great, and Persepolis, the city of the Persians itself. When the Parthian Empire collapsed, the rulers in the highlands were the Sassanids, and they'd been rebelling against the Parthians, and now the Parthians were all but beaten the Sassanids saw their opportunity to become something bigger. The first great king of the Sassanids was a man called Ardashir. He's known to history as the founder of the Sassanid Empire. He built the last Parthian army and he killed the last Parthian emperor. And then Ardashir and his new Sassanid army rolled over the little small kingdoms that had once been part of Parthian territory. In the space of just a few years, he conquered all the way up to the borders of the Roman Empire. So that's what Ardashir is known for, setting up this great new empire, this new rival of Rome. But if you were a cushion, Ardashir would have been known for far more than that, because in the very first years of his reign, after he'd conquered up to Roman territory, he turned his attention to the east. First, he conquered the great central trading city of Merv, an important uh, nexus on the Silk Road. And then he went further into the homeland of the Cushions, Bactria, with its great cities of Balkh and Termes. And the records say that Ardashir killed many people and he sent their heads back to the Temple of Fire. And the records also say that the Cushions, the Cushion kings, came and paid homage to him. This new power on the scene was just too great. The Romans couldn't hold it back. The little kingdoms couldn't hold it back and the Cushions couldn't hold it back. Before long, Ardashir himself proudly announced that he was now king of Kushanshar, the kingdom of the Kushans. Ardashir left a set of Kushana kings in charge of Bactria, actually, but these weren't real Kushana kings. They were puppets, puppet Kushanas for a puppet kingdom. The real Kushanas were still being led by Vasudeva, but now they were cut off from their homeland. And that must have been an immense shock. A mental blow more than a physical one, because down the centuries the Kushans had never lost that sense that Bactria was their home. In their language, in their administrative organisation, in most cases in their religion, they remained resolutely Bactrian. Their clothing too. The empire, all of it, was run by young men trained in Bactria, even if they ruled in India. The Kushans saw themselves as Bactrians. But if this other empire ruled Bactria, then what were they now? Vasudeva's empire, cut off from its heartland, quickly withered. Now it wouldn't seem like that if you just looked at the coins that Vasudeva left. They were still scattered over a broad area. But that's because people used the cushion coins even when they didn't have any connection to the cushions. If you look at the inscriptions that Vasudeva left, they tell the real story. After 211 AD, there's not a single inscription of the Kushans found in Afghanistan, in the northwest frontier province, or in the Punjab anywhere. In fact, all of the inscriptions are in Mathura, well inside India. And inscriptions of other kings, even kings in India, even kings in the Ganges Valley, once firmly part of the Kushan Empire, now these are independent kings, and their inscriptions make no mention of the Kushans at all, not even as nominal overlords. As soon as the great Kushan Empire lost its heartland, it shrunk down to a small kingdom. Uh, hang around uh, as a small kingdom for really quite a long while. And a line of Kushan kings still ruled in Matura, dreaming of their former grandeur. They still called themselves Son of God, Devaputra. And they used the names of dead emperors. Emperors when, from, from a time when uh, the Kushan Empire had ruled so much. Kanishka. Vasishka, as if calling themselves by the same name as these great emperors, might hide the fact that they weren't emperors in anything but name anymore. That they were just one more line of kings amongst so many others. The puppet cushions that were installed by the Sassanids in northwest India, well, they didn't fare much better. The founder of the Sassanid Empire, Ardashir, he'd seemed quite tolerant, he'd allowed quite a lot of kings. He'd beaten to carry on ruling, provided they were subservient to him, but his son had no such patience. His name was Shapur I. This was a man who seemed to have not much mercy. A man who had one Roman emperor killed, and then he kidnapped another, and killed him too. This wasn't a man who had a soft spot for rival kings. And the puppet kings who had ruled in the east in Merv and Bactria, the kings whose father had defeated, Shapur I took the land off their hands, took the territories for himself, and those lands were henceforth ruled by the Sassanid royal family directly. So there we have it, the sad story of the end of the Kushan Empire, giving in to a new kid on the block, not really clear why. But instead of asking why, let's ask those questions we started this episode with. How did it feel when the empire was collapsing? Did people even notice? Did they laugh off the idea that the world was about to change forever? And what effect did the empire have on their day-to-day life? Did the cosmopolitan mix of people which had been uh, grown out of the trade that the Cushions supported, did that cosmopolitan mix disappear? Did their worldview shrink so that where once people might hear news from lands many months away, now they wouldn't know what was going on only a few days from their village? Tough questions, and we don't have much to answer them with. The trouble, as I said, with the fall of an empire is that the first records to go are the records of everyday folk. They're the sort of things that barely survive at the best of times, and definitely not at the end of an empire. But actually we can offer some partial answers. The invasion of the Sassanids certainly disrupted the movement of people, disrupted the trade lines. The Sassanids conquered Bactria and Merv. That's the end of the Silk Road. And the Cushan merchants were not any longer able to get their goods through that way. But the merchants still found a way. They carved a new path through the passes of Kashmir, winding up through the mountains at the end of the Himalayas, bypassing Sassanid territory altogether and coming finally out somewhere near modern-day Tajikistan, or maybe beyond. Now, even flying over those mountains, you can see how difficult the journey must have been. Tucked away in the folds of the mountains like a bookmark made of thread, there's just a thin line of road winding its way along the valley floor. And the valley's so narrow that there's just enough room for the occasional small patch of field or a couple of houses before the steep walls come close again and the road winds on alone. Difficult paths and the news of the outside world must have come to India quite slowly through these routes, but probably it came nonetheless. India was just not cut off from the world yet. And what about the other question? Did people notice that the empire was about to collapse? What difference did it make to their lives? Well, that one's harder. There's a lot less gold flowing around India by the time the Kushan empire retracts. The gold from Rome has dried up considerably. So you can imagine that most people probably became considerably poorer. But what do the people say for themselves? Well, plausibly... There are quite a few stories about common life written at this time, but none of the stories, or at least none of the ones I know, talk about a shrinking empire, a diminishing state. So, so far as we know, whilst the Cushion kings were struggling for their very existence, the common folk were quietly going about life as normal, whistling while the empire died. Every week we read something from the original sources and this week I thought we'd read that chronicle we mentioned right at the beginning of the episode, the one that talks about the three different kings, the phantom kings of the end of the Kushan era. It's a, it's a chronicle, a 12th century chronicle of the kings of Kashmir and it's called the Rajatarangini, the River of Kings. And actually it goes very quickly through the different kings that ruled in Kashmir in our period. Uh, it, passes from Ashoka the Great and the Mauryans very quickly to the Cushions. This is the end of the mainstream of series two, so I thought it would be a good time to take the trip in the Chronicle, from Ashoka to the Cushions. Here's how it goes, starting with Ashoka. Ashoka was a truthful and spotless king and a follower of Buddha. He caused many stupas to be built on the rocky banks of the Jilum. Uh, And on the extremity of the Dharmaranya he built a prayer hall so high that its top couldn't be seen. It was he who built Sringara, which contained no less than 96 lakhs of beautiful houses. He pulled down the dilapidated wall of the compound of the temple and built a new stone wall in its stead. He caused to be erected two palaces near the courtyard of that god, and named them Ashoka and his father. He built near Darat a town named Saura, and within that town he erected a palace which he named Narendra Balva. He died childless. And that's all the Chronicle has to say about Ashoka the Great. Skip forward just two to three pages, and you find the cushions. Here they are. Then they were on the throne of Kashmir, Three kings reigning jointly, namely Hushka, Jushka and Kanishka. They built three cities and called them after their names. Jushka also caused a monastery to be be built and another town named Jayashvampura. Though they were of Turkish origin, they yet built several monasteries and places of worship on the plains. And During their long reigns, Buddhist hermits were all-powerful in the country and Buddhist religion prevailed without opposition. From the death of the Buddha to this time, 150 years had passed. Well, there you go. That's the evidence for the three phantom kings of the Kushan era. If you can solve the riddle of who the kings were, then please drop me an email to let me know. Thank you very much indeed for listening to this episode and indeed thank you for listening to the whole series. Yes, that's right, we've reached the end of the narrative part of season two. But fear not, brave listener, series two is not entirely done. We're going to have some special episodes, not talking about the main narrative of the rulers, but covering a bunch of other things that I'm really interested in. Going to have an episode on Sanchi. Sanchi's uh, a great uh, Buddhist site, Never been there. Would really love to go. We're going to learn about the history of it. Going to have an episode on the relationship between the Cushions and the Romans and the trade connections with China as well. And another episode on costume, dress. What did ancient Indians wear? And another episode on artwork. This was the time when the two great schools of ancient Indian art emerged. One heavily influenced by the Greeks and one less so. These special episodes are going to come every fortnight rather than every week. And that's because I'm going to travel around a lot more at the moment due to work. So apologies for the lower frequency, but there you have it. Thank you once again for listening. And if you've been enjoying the podcasts, please do consider giving to my wife's charity. It's the Snehal City Memorial Fund and details are on the website. Enjoy your week and take care.